All right, let's begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that um, you hear our prayer when we say, open our eyes, that we may behold wonderful things out of your law. So, Lord, as we go through this passage, help us have ears to hear and a heart that's willing to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, and we're going to go through chapter 6, verse 2. So I'll read that passage to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. So I've entitled the sermon, Royal Ambassadors. When I was a young teenager, the Baptist church had a youth group called Royal Ambassadors. I, I don't know if they still do or not, but that was what they called it. Of course, based on the words from this chapter to help us young teenagers to see the ministry that God has given to all who are in Christ. But as youth with various passions, I think we only had a really limited understanding of what it truly meant. It did, however, challenge us to fully surrender to Jesus. Verse 18 again, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So our passage for today begins with all this. So we have to go back and see what it's referring to. All this includes the controlling power of the love of Christ the wonder that Christ would die for all mankind from Adam to the last person to one day enter the world, that we need no longer regard anyone according to their carnal nature, and that the old is gone, and that our hearts are already a part of the new creation. It's all from our loving Heavenly Father. The emphasis in these final four verses of chapter 5 is that it is God's initiative to reconcile us to him. It clearly states that in all four verses, the end of chapter five. God loves us and longs for us to accept this offer of reconciliation. This was God's plan from before the creation of the world. He knew love had to be a free choice, and that's why he created us with free will. He also knew that if we had free will, at some point we would choose to go our own way, rebelling against his great goodness. Sin separated us from God. And that would necessitate, necessitate the need for a reconciliation, which is to mend 
a separation between two parties. In this case, it's the offer of forgiveness from the offended party, which is God. Sin made us enemies of God, despite all his goodness towards us. But first, justice would have to be met. The just punishment for rebellion against all goodness is death. Before there was space or matter, before anything was formed, the Father and Son determined that the Son would bear the penalty himself so that we could be reconciled to God. As I understand it, this was also the only way we could see and comprehend the great love of the Father and Son for us all. Agape love is a love that chooses to set its love upon one because of the value they see within that one. God created each of us with incredible potential, but sin marred and distorted mankind. By reconciling us to himself, God began a process by which all things will be made new. Now, if we're reconciled, you might ask, well, why then do we still sin? Well, the work has begun, but it will not be completed until we see him. When our faith becomes sight, the glory of his presence will finish any earthly desire that remains in us. That's the glorious state of Sezo and Don, even now. He's doing that work in us right now. It began when we were born again. And the more we cooperate with the Spirit and behold his glory, the more we are changed. He has reconciled us. It is done. But at the same time, it's being worked out in our daily lives. But that's not all. While we are in this process of our actions and thoughts being sanctified, he blesses us with the amazing ministry of reconciliation. He gives us the opportunity to be his instruments as we let others know that God invites them to be reconciled to him. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Paul elaborated on just what, it, what he meant. In Christ, God was repairing the breach between God and man that was caused by mankind's sin, because God is holy and he cannot abide evil. His righteous nature must judge it. But his love and mercy require that he provide a way for reconciliation. That is, to not count our trespasses against his holiness. And that was Jesus' mission, reconciliation. But now the mission is entrusted to us. It's not that we die for the sins of others as he did for us, but that we die to ourselves so that the love and life of Jesus might be manifest in us. God doesn't need us. He can and he does reveal himself to people when they seek to know him. But because he's so gracious, he invites us to be incarnational witnesses of his love. Jesus works through us to show his love to others. 
I believe he does that because he wants to reward us when he, we enter our eternal state. But it's also because he is sharing his life with us, which is, includes his love for others and his desire to see them reconciled with the Father, who's not willing that any should perish. He wants all to come to a knowledge of the truth and choose to accept his gift of forgiveness earned for us by Jesus on the cross. He's entrusted this mission to us. That's amazing, consider how weak and vulnerable we are, yet knowing that his life is in us to enable us makes the task less daunting. In fact, we simply need to let him do it through us. We can't do it on our own. It must be his life. For if it's our own strength and ingenuity, it will not produce lasting fruit. And this behooves us to learn to follow his leading and surrender ourselves to be obedient to his gentle directions. Verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God reconciled us to himself through Jesus' sacrifice. His justice was satisfied. He made us a new creation and entrusted us with the message of reconciliation. And that makes us ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador goes out in the world to represent his ruler. His sole purpose is to relay the message from the one who sent him. He possesses the authority of the one who sent him out. We represent the kingdom of God. And as we go out into this fallen world, our king, our Lord God, appeals to the lost through us. And this is our appeal. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's what we call our witness. It may come in various forms, but as mentioned earlier, it is always the Holy Spirit in us pleading with the lost. God's heart that desires that none perish prompts us to acts of kindness and service. Our words and actions cause people to wonder and to ask about the hope that lies in us. And the Holy Spirit gives us the words that will touch their hearts with the love of Christ. Now the context here is clearly salvation. However, there's also the need of ministry of reconciliation within the church body. Our old nature can rise up and offend someone. And then there's the need for reconciliation and grace in the form of forgiveness. We are commanded by Jesus to love one another. And we can't do that when we hold something against our brother or sister. Remember, we're to regard no one according to the flesh. How we need to remember this. We must recognize that we could just as easily allow our flesh nature to do the same thing that they've done. If you want grace and forgiveness, you must sow grace and forgiveness. When Paul tells them that God is making his appeal through his ambassadors, it also implies that this letter is not just from Paul, but is also God appealing to them. 
To reject the inspired words that God is speaking through Paul is not to just reject Paul, but to reject God. The same is true of spirit-led witnessing to the lost. God is urging people to be reconciled to him. Jesus told the disciples that when they are rejected, it's because those people have rejected Jesus. Paul's pleading with the Corinthian believers to be reconciled to God. This implies that they have allowed sin to disrupt their relationship. Not that they have lost their salvation, but that their attitude toward Paul and focus on the externals has disrupted their communion with God. There's often a need in our walk with the Lord to more fully receive the reconciliation that Christ has merited for us on the cross. We stand in grace, but our old nature is kept in the grave through openness to correction and repentance. Paraphrasing Bill Bright, we need to get off the throne of our hearts and invite Jesus to once again take his rightful place. Paul's letters are God inviting reconciliation with one another. His role as a reconciler is clear in both Paul's letters to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tries to remedy the I disease that inspires the party spirit and the squabbling. I belong to Cephas, Apollos, Paul, Christ. He intervenes to restrain wealthier members from trying to gain advantage over others by bringing legal action against poorer members in pagan courts. He attributes conflicts concerning marriage. I'm sorry, he arbitrates conflicts concerning marriage, reminding them that God has called them to peace. He cautions the ones with knowledge to be considerate of scruples of the weak regarding anything associated with idols. And he rebukes entire congregation for celebrating a Lord's Supper that leaves poor members humiliated and hungry. And in 2 Corinthians, he insists that they forgive the offender who has repented. And the entire letter seeks to bring reconciliation between himself and the church. So we can see both letters are an effort to bring reconciliation. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is Paul's theology in a nutshell. If you memorize any verse other than John 3:16, this should be it. It's no different from Jesus' theology, despite the many books that try to claim it is, Jesus and Paul had the rich culture of atonement from their Jewish heritage. They both knew the prophetic promises of the new covenant. They both knew covenants were sealed with blood because the life of the flesh is in the blood and the soul that sins must die. They both understood substitutionary atonement in other words, that our sins must be placed on another to be free of them, as was part of the celebration of the Day of Atonement. Paul even says that Christ is our Passover lamb. But Rabbi Saul didn't understand that the only perfect sacrifice was this sinless Son of God. It was a mystery. For Jews knew God was not pleased with the, bulls, the blood of bulls and goats, it only pictured what was to come 
And thus Isaiah prophesied that unto us a son is given, who is referred to as mighty God. And that is why Jesus declared that he came to give his life a ransom for many. When Rabbi Saul was converted on the road to Damascus, he went into the wilderness of Arabia for three years to see where his training had led him astray. The vision of the glorified Christ has shown him that as a Jewish scholar, he had missed a key message of the Old Testament. He then saw the suffering servant song was sent, uh, written to describe the servant who was to bear the iniquities of us all. During that time, his theology that is expressed in this verse became clear to him. He saw in scriptures what he missed. His thought theology became the same as that of the Lord Jesus. No wonder God picked one of the brightest Jewish minds to evangelize and explain from scripture what Jesus had taught the disciples that the entire Old Testament is about him. It is a mystery to me that God could make the son to be sin. I've looked at the Greek and seen how translators come up with that translation. I think the King James Version translation became sin isn't the best translation. The Greek word is translated in over 50 different ways in scripture. I would have preferred the translation appointed, which is, which is used in Hebrews 3.2 for this very word, just as the scapegoat was appointed to carry the sins of the people into the wilderness. Or as Isaiah said in 53 verse 6, laid upon or fell upon him. Peter says Jesus bore our sins. Scripture clearly de declares that Jesus never sinned, even in this very verse. Therefore, I think we should see made him to be sin. In the same way we see the scapegoat was made to be sin for the people of Israel and to suffer the punishment for those sins. It had to be one without blemish to show that it was not chosen to cull the flock, thus cheapening the sacrifice, but that it didn't deserve death. That's a, the picture from scripture that looked forward to our sinless savior. It took both the flawless scapegoat and the sacrificial goat to represent Christ. The sinless one took our sins upon himself and suffered our sins just penalty. We can see this idea in Galatians 3.13. While Jesus did nothing to merit being cursed, he was hung on a tree, which was a sign of being cursed. We can conclude that the sovereignty of God allowed Jesus to be cursed for our sins. Kent Hughes describes this. On the cross, Christ was robed in all that is heinous and hateful as the mass of our corruption poured over him. Wave after wave of our sin was poured over Christ's sinless soul. Again and again during those three hours, his soul recoiled and convulsed as all our lies, hatreds, jealousies, and pride were poured upon his purity. Jesus was cursed as he became sin for us. 
can you see him writhing like a serpent in the gloom? Jesus, in full lucid consciousness, took on your sins and mine and bore them with a unity of understanding and pain that none can fathom. And he did it willingly. End of quote. And that's why we are to implore people on behalf of Christ to make what I like to call the great exchange. It's to exchange our sins for his righteousness. Verse 15 declares that Jesus died for all so anyone can come to him in faith and recognition of what he's done for us and receive forgiveness and have the righteousness that Jesus merited on our behalf. And that means that in Jesus, we have the righteousness of God. This is one of those statements, the depths of which we can't fathom. This verse is also pointing out that if we accept this re reconciliation, we are in Christ. Paul's life before Christ was an all-out effort to be righteous and yet always falling short. He found the only way to be righteous was to be in the righteous one. When God looks on us, he sees the righteousness of Jesus' life. That is unmerited favor. It was only merited by Jesus. If we truly acknowledge this reality, we should always have a heart filled with gratitude and praise. What more could we ask than to be fully accepted by our loving and gracious God? At the same time, being righteous in the eyes of God opens the way for us to be filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit enables us to refuse sin and walk in the Spirit, which is to live out the righteousness of God. So this unit, these verses at the end of chapter 5, contain three key assertions. God is the driving force behind the redemption of humankind. Reconcil reconciliation comes solely at God's initiative. The second, God acted through Christ's death, and Christ alone is the means of reconciliation. And the third, God continues to act through those who have been reconciled. Chapter 6, verse 1. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. God is making his appeal through us. We have this unimaginable privilege of working together with the creator of all things. Paul is saying it's not just his appeal to them, but God's. Working together with God is being a surrendered instrument in the hands of God. An instrument cannot boast that it does anything on its own. It has a maker who supplies the power. It's directed by his hand. And while a tool cannot resist being used, we can. But what a wonderful opportunity we have when he invites us to work together with him. All glory goes to him. God is giving a word of warning through Paul to the Corinthians and to us. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. If what has been said to this point is thrilling and encouraging, giving us hope and meaning, this verse is a big flashing warning light. 
the grace of God can be received to no effect. And that reminds us of chapter 3, verse 15 in the first letter. The fire of testing on our life's work may leave only ashes. Verse 2, for he says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Paul backs his warning with scripture, as he usually does, with all his main points. And this one is from Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. The passage is messianic, predicting that Jesus will be a light to the nations and that his salvation will reach the ends of the earth, but also declaring that he will be despised and abhorred by the nation. And yet the day will come when kings will bow before him, God's chosen one. This means that the you in verse eight is referring to Jesus, but Paul is applying it to us. Why? Because as he just said, we are in him and God is making his appeal through us. God is helping us to be those ambassadors. And that's why today is the favorable time, the day of salvation. When we're led to share Christ with others, know that the Holy Spirit is speaking through you. Count on his words, drawing that person to himself. Do not lean to your own wisdom, but let him speak through you. He is helping us to lead others into the kingdom through the reconciliation that he provided. Is God calling you to salvation today through this verse? Working together with him, what a privilege, what a wonder. Do not receive the grace of God in vain. Let him make you a royal ambassador. <laughs>